understanding in a spiritual way, we are drawn more and more to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the Lord, he speaks about this in the context of, um, of the people receiving him and his message. So that he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he starts to speak about how this generation will be judged because unlike the queen of the south or unlike Jonah, one who is much greater than both has come to the world as a light and the world has rejected that light and chosen to live in darkness. So it is in the context of the Lord speaking about the people receiving him and his message that he gives this uh, teaching about the lamp of the body being the eye. So if the lamp, so if the eye here then is spiritual perception, understanding, um, then what is the body? The body is simply our whole life. So the Lord is saying when you, when your soul is spiritual and perceives and understands and reflects in a spiritual manner and therefore is drawn to the truth about God, then your whole life will be sanctified, will be good, will be holy. Um, St. Paul said something similar to the Ephesians in the very first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians. He said, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. So what does it mean when the eye is good? Sort of a strange uh, way of, of expressing this uh, teaching of our Lord, when the eye is good. He doesn't mean the eye is good in, a, in an ethical or moral sense. He doesn't mean simply like when the eye doesn't look at bad things. But other translations help to sort of give us a, a, a greater insight into the meaning of good here. Some translations will, will speak about healthy, uh, if your eye is healthy. But I think better, the better translations speak about the eye being clear or the eye being single. And in the, in the King James Version, actually, the, the translation is when your eye is single. And, and this is very important because what does it mean for our eye to be single? What does it mean for our spiritual perception, our spiritual understanding, our spiritual mindset to be single? It means that it shouldn't be divided between two different realities, between two different truths. So to have a single eye means, it means that our whole life is directed oriented towards God and his truth, his love, his mercy, and his eternal life that he offers to us. The opposite, of course, is ha of having a single eye is double vision, right? And, and here, a person who has double vision doesn't see anything clearly, right? And that's why Christ surprisingly says that, um, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. In other words, if your eye is not single, if, it's, if, if your eye is oriented on the one hand, sometimes towards God, sometimes towards truth, sometimes towards the reality of, of eternity that the Lord reveals to us, and another part of your life is directed towards love of the world and of the flesh, right? then he, he doesn't say that you will be 50% light. He says you will be all dark. Right? So, the danger, of course, with double vision is that there's, n there's no sense in which you see anything that is good clearly. And, and so that's why the Lord warns us in other ways, too. He says you cannot love what? God and mammon. 
For you will either love the one and hate the other, right? Or you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Right? In other words, we don't have the capacity to be fully committed to two opposing realities or to two realities that don't completely um, complement each other. And so when Christ today speaks to us about the good eye, he speaks to us about having clear sight, having single vision, having real purpose to our life, real direction, real understanding of, of who we are, who God is, and where we're going. Um, one of the great spiritual masters of the church, uh, St. John Climacus, he, he spoke about the spiritual life in terms of a ladder, of many steps, 30 steps. And, and each step represents um, either a virtue or overcoming a passion of the, of the, of the desires of the flesh uh, in order to acquire our ultimate purpose, which is to be unified, to be united with God. And, and in that um, spiritual masterpiece, the ladder of divine ascent, he speaks about the importance of spiritual discernment, spiritual perception. And he says very simply that there are three kinds of important spiritual elements of spiritual discernment in our life. He says the first one is accurate self-knowledge. Accurate self-knowledge. To know who you truly are. To know why you were created, what you were created for, who you are in relationship to your creator, and so on. To have a real, accurate, clear, single vision of who you are and what you are called to be. And the second aspect, he says, is distinguishing between what is truly good in, in nature and in our lives and what is opposed to the good. Right? It's to have the ability to know whether I should go left or right, whether to know right from wrong, whether to know what's true and what's false, to know what's good and what's not good for me in my life. To have that compass in which I have clarity of the goodness of God and his purpose for the world and for myself, and to be able to have that clear navigation to know the direction I should, I should uh, follow him. And then the third one, he says, knowledge that results from divine illumination. In other words, he speaks of this third category of discernment as being sort of a supernatural vision. It's the vision that, that, that only God can give. It's to, in a sense, share with God in his own vision of things. It's to be able to perceive with the eyes of God. And this is something that we see very beautifully in the lives of the saints, is that sort of supernatural elevated uh, perception or discernment in the spiritual realities. So, if we think about how then do we practice? How then do we, how can we put this concept of spiritual perception and discernment in the context of our spiritual life on a day-to-day -day basis? Very simply, I think we can look at the three great virtues that St. Paul talks about of faith, hope, and love. These three, faith, hope, and love, contain everything. 
They contain everything. And we can think of faith as that singleness of vision of what the truth is. To believe in God, to believe accurately in the, in, 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 in as much as possible by the revelation of God himself to us, who God is and why he created us and what his plan is for us and his promises for us. This is faith. Faith also, of course, in terms of the teachings of the church, which give us the proper boundaries of sort of creating idols for ourselves of who God is, because today many people want to create their own God. They want to say, my God is such and such and not such and such. And so their God becomes a personal idol. They, they, they create the God that they want to know and worship. But the teachings of the church give us revealed knowledge about who God is. And therefore, to have a greater insight to the faith of the church is very important. And then the second one we said was hope. Hope. Hope here is the fruit of faith. Because to believe in God is good. To believe in the teachings of the church is good. But faith must lead us in a relationship of greater and greater trust and hope. That when the world intersects with my faith and there's a clash, whether through a trial or a difficulty or some mystery in my life that I don't understand, that doesn't make sense, and I turn upward and I say, Lord, why, how, when, and the answer doesn't come, but because of that strength and faith, I have hope, I have trust in the goodness of God. So not simply to believe that God is, but to believe that God is good, to believe that God is faithful to his promises. And then love, which is the highest, St. Paul says, because love here is not the love of sentimentality. It's not the love of, uh, in an earthly sense, of affection, but it is divine love. It is the love that God has in his heart for his creation. It is the love that God has in his inner life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling in all eternity. And this love we come to experience with greater depth, the love of God that he, that he has for us, and this outpouring of his love, which then pours out from my own limited heart upon my brothers and my sisters, my brethren, the world, so that I begin in little ways to love as God loves, to be a reflection of his love. So if we, if we live faith, hope, and love, these three great virtues, our spiritual perception, that single eye, that clarity of vision will come more and more to give us those three levels of discernment, self-knowledge to distinguish between what is good and what is opposed to the good, and the divine illumination, which is to see things as God sees them. So I put um, this slide up. Um, you might be asking, why is this slide up? Um, I just finished this uh, beautiful um, biography about one of the modern saints that lived in Russia and her name was Saint Matrona. I actually didn't know much about her even though uh, I usually try to um, 
familiarize myself with many of the modern saints. Um, but this is one that I was never sort of introduced to. And I want to just share with you a little bit about Saint Matrona. Why? Because I hope as, you, as I reflect a little bit on about her life, you will see the relevance of a saint like Saint Matrona to the gospel today. To see what it means to have clear vision, spiritual vision, and what greater testimony of that reality than in a saint who was born blind. And not simply born blind, but as you will see, Saint Matrona, um, who lived uh, before, during uh, the Russian Revolution and communism, and World War I and World War II, um, a very exciting life, um, that she was born blind. And not only born blind, but the, those who knew her, and, and, and you can see somewhat in some of the pictures, that she was born without eyes. She had no pupils. Her, her eyelids were, were sort of permanently sealed shut. Um, and yet, Saint Matrona, who lived in the time of maybe some of our parents, or at least certainly our grandparents, uh, was a tremendous wonder-working saint. And they call her Saint Matrona the Wonder Worker because of the amount of miracles that happened in her life through her, around her, especially during these periods of war and great difficulty in, in Russia. And I just, to me, I'm fascinated by how this relates to uh, sort of this paradox of how we might approach truth and enlightenment and knowledge with our education, with our sciences, with our politics, right? And here comes this poor peasant. She was born in a peasant family, very poor peasant family. She was born completely blind. And as you will see, as a teenager, she lost uh, all movement below her waist. And therefore, as you see in this picture, which was sort of uh, the way that she essentially lived for most of her life was sitting in a bed, as you see in that posture, beaming with joy in prayer, um, helping thousands and thousands of people in miraculous ways. So Saint Matrona, interestingly, her, when, she was, when her mom was pregnant with her, because of their poverty, she decided to give the baby away. It, it, whatever they had in those days, similar to an orphanage, there was a way for, for people who couldn't, because of poverty, um, raise children, they, they could give them away. And so she, the mother had determined that this child would be given away. And then she had a, a vision, a dream, a beautiful dream. And in, in the dream, she saw um, a beautiful white dove, white bird, that had the, um, a human face. But the white bird's face, the eyes were completely closed. And the bird came and settled on, uh, perched its, its, uh, its body on the right hand of the mother. And when the child was born, and the child was born, of course, the, they didn't know during the pregnancy that the child would be born blind, the mother understood that this vision related to her child. So she kept the child. 
The first indication that something great was destined for this child was during her baptism. When she was baptized, all of the witnesses, including the priest whose testimony is, is written with his own documentation and his own name and picture, he says that during her baptism, there was a beautiful cloud, fragrant cloud that rose up from the waters like a column and everybody smelled the beautiful fragrance. And the priest turned to the people, he said, in all of my years of, of baptizing hundreds and hundreds of children, I've never seen anything like this. This child is going to be a saint. So very early on, everybody understood there was something unusual about this child, that God had certain plans for this child. But nobody predicted or could expect that by the age of seven and eight, that this child would be given the gifts to perform miracles, to heal, and to prophesy. And so all around the village, people began to hear about this blind peasant child who had the gift of healing the sick. And many people began to come to her in order to um, receive healing for themselves or for their family members or to resolve problems that they were having on their farms or whatever it might be. Once as a child, a very beautiful story about, again, sort of spiritual insight, spiritual knowledge, spiritual discernment. Because again, what is the purpose of saints like this? Why does God give us saints like this? Why does he sanctify a child from her birth in a time like communism and two world wars? Why does God give us saints in these times? to be a light, to be prophets, to be, to be a judgment against the knowledge of this world, to be a judgment against ourselves who think that we are so enlightened, so advanced, so savvy. Right? And so, very simply, one time Matrona's mom, she went to the church and she urged her husband to come along and the husband said, no, I don't want to go to church today, I'm going to pray from home perhaps a, a scenario that maybe some of us have experienced. And so the mom kept insisting that the husband go with her to church, and he refused. He said, I will pray at home. You go to church. So the mom went to the church, and uh, Matrona also was home with her father. And the mother, the whole time that she was at church, was sort of reeling from um, the fact that her husband didn't come to church and... Uh, and while she went to church and, and her husband decided to stay home and so on. So when her mom came home, Matrona as a child, again, very young child, she said, Mommy, you haven't been to church, but Daddy was in church. So her mom, surprised, said, What do you mean? Of course, you know that I just came back from church. And you know that Daddy stayed home and didn't go to church. And again, the young child kept repeating, Father was in church but mother was not in church. And then she explained to her mom that while she was in the church, she was not in the church. And while her father was not in the church, he was, by his prayers, in the church. What insight from a, a, a small child to even her own parents. As I mentioned, as a teen, she lost her ability to walk and therefore she remained her whole life like this picture um, of course, this picture taken a little bit later in her life, sitting on a bed. And, and not only that, but she was a sort of wandering peasant, poor peasant, you know, and that um, at one point when 
she, was, she moved to Moscow, and the authorities were constantly hearing about this machona that people were going to every day by sometimes 40, 50 people, there would be a line every day to see her. And of course, she would reinvigorate sort of uh, spiritual life in these people and talks of miracles and healings and so on. And so the, the government, they wanted to do away with this silly, paralyzed, blind peasant that silly people were running after. And dozens of times they would try to arrest her. And of course, the Holy Spirit, the Lord would advise her oftentimes within just five minutes before their arrival, and she would move to another house. And so her whole life until she died in peace, even the, even the Soviet regime, that massive complex, could not capture a paralyzed, blind old woman. Talk about a paradox, right? Um, the one time, there is one story in which um, one of these militiamen um, went to go arrest her. And um, the people around Matrona wondered why she didn't know ahead of time that this time they were coming and somebody actually got into the house to arrest her. But then she said to the, uh, to the soldier, she said to him, go home now and save your wife. So of course the soldier thought she was just trying to pull one over on him. And she kept insisting to him, go and save your wife, you only have a few minutes. And something inside of the young man finally caved and said, you know what, it's not worth taking the risk. I will go and see uh, what's happening at home. So he went home and he found his wife um, had accidentally burned herself when she was like, like cooking with oil and she was literally about to die and unless he arrived at that moment in order to save her life. The next day they asked him at work if he arrested the old peasant woman and he said to them, I will never arrest her because for her I would have lost my wife. So even the one time that they did get to her, it was only for her and her love to help one of these communist soldiers in saving his own wife. So she, she was a sort of prophet, and she foretold everything that was going to happen. She said church, before even people had it, this was, you have to understand, before the communist revolution, Russia was not just Russia, it was holy Russia. The Tsar, the Tsar was a Christian emperor. The, the, the state was a Christian state. When you go to Russia today, and you, you see sort of how they are reviving church life in Russia, and you see the massive cathedrals and, and on every corner, and the monasteries, and the numbers of convents and monasteries throughout Russia, you, can, you only get a, a sense of what it was like before communism. And people laughed and said, holy Russia, to become atheistic, and of course, as we know in history, it was almost overnight that there was this huge shift. And so she said, churches will be robbed and destroyed, they will be burned, people will be persecuted and put to death, bishops and priests will be killed, and people didn't understand what she was talking about. She never possessed anything, she never owned her own house, she never 
had a place that she could call home, but she was, again, moved from place to place. Um, there's an interesting story about uh, one time when um, her biographer, her name is uh, Zineda Danova, if I'm saying that cor correct, Zineda Danova, she, um, you know, that she would often say like, you know, oh, poor Matrona, you know, you can't see the, the beautiful stars of the sky and the sunset and the, and the, and the green grass. And, and Matrona would laugh and say, the Lord has shown me all of this and much more. You know, and, and she was never sad. She was never, you know, you, you even get a sense in this picture that she's just full of this inner joy and peace. And one time, the same, uh, the same author she was, she was studying uh, to be an architect. And so in one of these projects that was supposed, supposed to decide her fate and her future, her advisor basically told her, tomorrow when you come and present this project, you're going to fail. You know, this is, this is, not, this is not good. You, you know, the, 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 the committee, the board that's going to examine this, there's no way they're going to pass you. And so Zeneda, she, she went to, at that time she was the one it was her house that St. Matrona was living in. And she was, of course, very distraught. And St. Matrona kept telling her, you are going to pass, you're going to pass, and stop worrying, you're going to pass. And finally that evening she told her, let's have some tea and let's go to Italy. So Zeneda was confused, what do you mean, let's have some tea and go to Italy? So Matrona started describing the streets of Florence and some of the most majestic um, architectural designs in Italy and she would mention street names and as if she was a tour guide at that moment in Italy and she began to tell this lady who was doing her project in architecture she said now do the arches in such and such a matter and at the entrance put these kinds of stone and so she prepared this beautiful and then the next day of course the committee was overwhelmed with with um, praise for um, the project, and she, of course, passed and became an architect. So these are just some of the um, many, small, many of the many stories that uh, surround this beautiful life. She was canonized in the Russian Orthodox Church in 1999, and today, um, thousands of people every day go to visit her relics in Moscow where, where um, her, her relics are contained. And until now, she is, as I said, she's called a wonder worker because of the number of miracles that continue to happen um, through her prayers. Um, one final story. Um, she had a vision of, she had a, a beautiful relationship with St. Mary, of course, with all the uh, angelic beings and um, saints. And St. Mary once told her that she wanted a very specific icon in the Russian tradition, they have icons that they name like uh, Mother of All Sorrows or Joy of All Sorrows, uh, certain titles that reflect a specific image of St. Mary. And so St. Mary appeared uh, to St. Matrona and told her that she wanted a very specific icon that nobody had heard of to be in, that, in the local church of the village. And so they asked her, how are we, we don't even know what this is. She told them the priest, and she described, she said, on his bookshelf, and she described a specific book on his bookshelf, 
and to open to a certain page, and that icon will be, uh, uh, and that image will be in that book on that page. And sure enough, they went to the priest's house, they, and the priest went to his bookshelf and found the image. So they, they commissioned an iconographer, but the iconographer apparently had lived a sinful life and didn't repent. So every time he tried to put the paint to the panel, he couldn't. He was like paralyzed. And so finally he went to St. Matrona. He's like, I can't do it. Something is preventing me from, do it, from doing it. And she said to him, because you killed a man and you never repented of it. Go and repent and confess and you will be able to paint the image. And sure enough, nobody had known that this man earlier in his life had killed somebody. And so he went and he repented and confessed and then he was able to paint this beautiful, and you can find it online if you look for it, um, and so, again, taking it back to the gospel, we'll end with there, there, taking it back to the gospel, spiritual perception, spiritual insight, spiritual mindset. This is why one like St. Matrona and many, many other saints were given by the Lord in different places, in different times, to different people in order to give us a reorientation of our life, to give us a sense. Now, you might ask yourself, well, where is the saint today for us? We don't need. We have. We have Saint Matrona. We have Saint Pope Carlos. We have, we have all of these wonderful saints who lived in our generation and are telling us how to live our life, how to reorient our life, how to repent, how to be embedded in the church, how to love the liturgy and the sacraments. And perhaps God will raise up another saint, even in America, for that will speak to us, but we, we don't need to wait. He has given to us already so many of these wonderful, and of course we have his word, his abiding word, which is never out of season that we can turn to. So again, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness, and glory be to God forever. Amen.